This is The Power Profile, stories of world-class leadership, hosted by award-winning broadcast journalist and media entrepreneur, Christina Mendonza. Get ready to connect with those defining success. This is The Power Profile, where we look at power in all forms of our personal and professional lives and talk to people who've leveraged power in their own lives. Now, my guests have spanned so many industries and professions, and I love learning along with you about all the aspects of wellness, art, psychology, medicine, finance, politics, travel, celebrities, sports figures. But when I get to interview another journalist, well, it's like um, it's like traveling overseas. When you meet another American, you speak the same language, you have this immediate cultural understanding. And that is what I felt while chatting with my guest today, Cheryl Ackeson. And we talked about how news has changed, how journalists have changed, the levers of industry and government, the infiltration of activist agendas into some journalism schools, uh, network newsrooms. We talked about the fact that the public sees a lot more than we give them credit for. It felt so validating to chat with her because so much of what was happening to her at the network was also happening at local stations. And those of us who it was happening to felt like we were losing our minds sometime. I remember being in the newsroom at a local TV station when Donald Trump won the election. I was prepping for the 11 o'clock newscast. I was going through my Twitter feed, trying to gauge the mood of people kind of check to see what other stations might be working on. And I came across several tweets from coworkers, journalists I was working with. And the tweets were emotional. They were calling the newly elected president names. They were expressing disgust at the outcome of the election. And I remember reading these and my mouth dropped open. I was shocked at the disregard for any objectivity, the disregard for the damage being done to the credibility of our newsroom as I saw all the tweet back, tweets back to the comments in the comments. I mean, just people were just ripping them for being what they were being, activists, not journalists. So I alerted our newsroom managers to this and essentially I got a shrug. And that's when I knew I wasn't gonna be there very much longer. There was this new agenda at the station that involved advocacy and activist journalism. That's what they wanted. And they made that clear. And those of us who knew that was wrong were either gaslit or replaced. Now, Cheryl tells a story that feels so familiar, but on a much larger scale, because not only did she have to deal with activists in her network, but also government intrusion into her stories. It is chilling. Even as today, we're finding out how much the government tries to control what people consume in terms of news. Now, she has a national show now that she has complete control over. It's on Sunday nights. It's called Full Measure. She spent 21 years at CBS News, many, many Emmy, Murrow, other awards. She worked on and broke some of the biggest national stories like Fast and Furious. You might remember that. That was when the ATF was basically supplying guns to straw buyers that crossed the border. And then some of those weapons were used in violent crimes, including the killing of a U.S. Border Patrol agent. She covered the Firestone tire controversy. She'll mention several others in our conversation that you're sure to remember. And then she'll mention others that you never heard of because the stories were thwarted by the network. She shared with me some of the things that she's never talked about in any of her books, in any public arena, in terms of her resignation from CBS. Some things that happened to her at the network that she's not talked about before. Her pivot to full measure, we'll go over that, the demands she made in terms of control of that show 
and the work she's doing there now that she says is so satisfying. I was a fan before, even more so now. Here's my conversation with Cheryl Atkinson. My first question, I just have to ask you, are you really a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo? Well, the truth is no, because now I'm a fifth degree black belt master in Taekwondo. Wow. Since I you read that information. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. That's great. I mean, when did you get interested in Taekwondo? Did you, did you take it up for personal safety or just fitness or interest? After 9-11, I got my daughter enrolled in a class. She's more of a martial arts girl than a ballet girl. And when I would be watching her, um, I started seeing other adults taking the course and thought I could be doing this myself and getting exercise. She did it for a long time, but dropped out with high school sports, taking most of our time up when she got to high school. And I just kept doing it. So I love it. It's, it's great for fitness, confidence, self-defense, the whole, the whole range of things we're supposed to be doing to take care of ourselves. Absolutely. Oh, that's great. Well, I started really really paying attention to the show Full Measure when I left my own television job in 2017. But how did you initially launch that? Was that in the works before you left CBS? Tell me about that transition to Full Measure. Well, very interesting story, I think, because when I decided to leave CBS News ahead of my contract, because there were too many people involved in the editorial process that no longer wanted factually correct stories, they were just wanting propaganda and narratives, on the front end of this trend that we've seen really across the board. Mm -hmm. When I left, I thought to myself, who's going to hire me now that I've spoken out about it? Cause it was sort of a public thing. When I left, it was a controversy that CBS really didn't want to have, but they had to handle that in the press. And I ended up writing a New York times bestseller that talked about it. So I had made up my mind before quitting CBS. That was my last, probably my last job in journalism. But surprisingly, I got offered quite a few jobs after that, and I sat and thought about it because I didn't want to go to work for somebody else that was going to be able to shape stories inappropriately, or even worse, what I found at CBS, when I could break a really big, important story, they wouldn't air it, and then I couldn't, I couldn't publish it anywhere else, of course, because I'm working for CBS. So right. that can be used to make sure a story never gets out because they have the hold on you. So long story short, I'd never heard of Sinclair, but they reached out to me and they own TV stations across the country and wanted to start their first big national show that airs on all their affiliates. We feed to 43 million households every Sunday. And they let me sort of design the type of show I wanted to do that was unconflicted, unlike regular news outlets, frequently by my colleagues in print and national TV saying, how are you allowed to do those stories? And they're just ordinary stories we all used to do 10 or 15 years ago, but they're just they're not being done because of all the shaping of the news now. So Sinclair reached out. They agreed to let me you know, have certain autonomous control over topics. And I also uh, retained a deal whereby if they don't want to publish a story for any reason, I'm not full, wholly committed to them in a way that I can't publish elsewhere. And that was a big one to me. So wow. I, I have the freedom to not be told that a story can't be made public. That is the dream gig to not be tethered, you know, to their, to, to one network's philosophy. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're just trying to do your job, where do you think this generation of activist journalists came from? You know, do you, do you think it's what the networks want? Is it social media? Is it the university system? Uh, the, just the nature of the generation? Where do you think it came from? I think all of the above. If you look at, the industry, and I believe it started with a powerful multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar pharmaceutical industry. 
that started to develop a need and methods and strategies to control media coverage when vaccines were being linked to autism and all kinds of problems. And they were, it was really threatening one of the biggest parts of their industry. And they came to understand how to influence Congress, how to influence the media, how to hire PR firms and create nonprofits with misleading names that they were actually driving and to hire LLCs and work super PACs and donate to politicians and staff political offices in Congress. Well, they figured out this formula and the companies and these crisis firms and PR firms and all these companies I've described, you know, understood there's a market not just in the pharmaceutical industry, but all kinds of corporations and political interests who all then, you know, the skills began getting marketed to corporations and businesses and political causes. And they all learned how to infiltrate the media, how to shape and control it. And then with the advent of the popularity of social media and the internet, that made everything much easier because it's so simple and almost cost-free to use certain social media in a way that makes people think there's a grassroots effort going on or to attack um, studies that they don't like in a way that makes it look like the studies or the researchers are incredible. They figured out all that, and that's been happening over the course of really the past two decades. They've also gotten into journalism schools. I mean, pretty much any arena that could be manipulated or any arena that was important in our information landscape, they've slowly figured out how to get inside so that they can influence the dialogue and make what I think is, is not a true environment look like it's true. So you'll, you'll look online and say, gosh, everybody must think this, but me, I must be weird because everything I read on, <laughs> everything I see on the news says this is normal and this is how everybody thinks, so I better keep my mouth shut. And that's the point. That's the purpose of what they're doing. So we have to be smarter, and I think people are getting wise to these strategies and understand that what you see in this controlled environment isn't real and pay a lot of attention instead to what's going on around you. You know, I want to talk to you just about a little bit more about that incongruous, that kind of weird feeling you get when you, you sense that things aren't what they seem. You spent 21 years at CBS News. Sounds like things were going along great. I remember your work on the Firestone Tire story, and then the Obama administration came in. All of a sudden, uh, you said there was this mood change, like where government watchdog stories weren't as embraced by the network. When did you first notice this change, and how did it present itself? It began with the control of the pharmaceutical industry when I was assigned to cover uh, vaccine-related injury stories and knew nothing about the, 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 the story in general. I was not a medical reporter. My own child has all her vaccinations. I have all mine and then some because I've had to travel with the military. But I learned some really shocking things had been covered up, peer-reviewed published studies. I had whistleblowers, people on the inside of government telling me things. And I, I spent over a year just researching before I dared report my first story on the vaccine autism link, which is proven and undisputed, except that's just not what you hear anywhere on the media. Right. First, CBS and um, other networks and other print outlets were reporting a lot of stuff on the pharmaceutical industry at the time, very popular stories that impact a lot of people. And then um, I did notice there was a point in time where they didn't want them anymore. So I was assigned to cover the stories. They couldn't get enough of them. And all of a sudden, it got this squidgy feeling. They, no one ever told me to stop. No one ever told me they didn't want them. But there was someone in the chain with some kind of odd pushback as, in terms of how they wanted to read, or maybe they'd sit on the shelf a while before they would air, even if they were very important and meaningful. And I came to realize only in hindsight 
that it coincided with the time period that the pharmaceutical industry partnered with the broadcast industries, including CBS, to lobby Congress for direct-to-consumer ads to be made legal. Back in the day, it was illegal to advertise prescription drugs on TV, if you can believe it or not. There's a lot of people that won't remember that. To get that legalized, and we're one of the only countries that allows it, required a huge lobby effort that we, the broadcast industry and media, partnered with the pharmaceutical industry to get passed because we're making billions and trillions of dollars on it. They're making a ton of money, and they also bought control of us in, in the process because now we know where our bread is buttered. Even if they don't come in as they have and say, don't air a story, they don't really even have to say that every time now because we understand as an industry, the reporters and the editorial people, who's paying the bills, and those stories just don't get told anymore. Right, you hear it before, you know, so many newscasts brought to you by Pfizer <laughs> or, you know, whoever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, do you remember um, the moment that you made the decision to leave CBS? I, I mean, I, I mean, I can't imagine how hard that must have been because uh, anyone who has ever been in the broadcast industry or even watching it from the outside, people know how hard you work to achieve that position. It had been your professional life's work. What was the moment you made the decision to leave and what was that turning point like for you? Well, I left twice. I ended up staying one extra year after I quit the first time um, for various reasons. But it came after all the stories had started to become so managed that even when I would look in a different direction, I'd say, okay, well, they don't want to. I didn't do political coverage, but I guess the stories that had some perceived political impact on somebody, that's what some people in the editorial chain were against, particularly really primarily if they were perceived to harm any Democrat interests. And so even though my reporting was just on issues and things that happened and whistleblowers, if it could be in any way connected to the Obama administration at the time, it seemed like they wouldn't air the story. So I started looking for other things that didn't even have anything to do. I would say, gosh, even if you take five steps down the road, this story really doesn't impact anybody political. I can find other stories to do. Well, it got to the point they didn't want to do those stories either. Anything that was scratching beyond the surface it had to do with any charity that was doing something wrong or corporation that was being investigated or anything like that. They just didn't want. And they wanted the story shaped in a way that they weren't true. So I guess the last straw for me when I tried everything else, um, they assigned me to a transportation beat. I'd been an investigative reporter, but I think they were trying to keep me busy on just non-investigative <laughs> stuff. The first thing they asked me to do was look into the Dreamliner fires. Mm -hmm. So... In my natural fashion, I dug in and I had some incredible information on the Dreamliner fires, including a whistleblower, a guy that was involved years before in a prototype battery for the Dreamliner that had caught fire at, in the factory where he worked. And he had evidence about all kinds of falsification of testing and all kinds of stuff that I documented what he did. I checked it out. I um, looked at court records because there had been a court case about it. And then I ran it by a former head of the National Transportation Safety Board who told me that this guy and the information he had was a smoking gun on the Dreamliner fires, which nobody had really cracked yet. Um, in addition, there was actually, this is good for TV, of course, he had video of the fire from years ago. There was video of this whole plant going up in flames because of this you know, Dreamliner prototype battery. So I put together a story. He was a great interview, and it was an amazing story. The producer, two producers who worked on me with it liked it. 
the producer who approved the script in DC loved it. It was legally approved. I get all my scripts legally approved um, at CBS, my investigative stuff. And it went to New York and the problematic executive producer at the time, Pat Shevlin, calls and says something like, why are we talking about this battery fire in the factory from years ago in the script? And I'm on the phone looking at one of my producers who's looking at me like, what is she talking about? <laughs> like, well, this is a story about how the fires could be caused and the, the root right. origin. And she kept saying, well, I don't understand why we're using the video. And I looked at the producer across the room and did the cut across your neck signal, which meant don't even argue with her. When you start hearing these crazy things said to you that make no sense, it means they're not going to air the story. Yeah. They're not going to tell you why, but they just start, we used to call it death by a thousand cuts. They pick at it, pick at it ways that don't make sense without really telling you why, but you start to know what's going on. Ultimately, I then shopped that story, as we call it, to the weekend news, because at the time, if one show won't air your story, the correspondents could take it to others. They're fairly independent. And the weekend news had said to me, we'll take anything you do that they don't want, because they understood that evening news was problematic, not just for me, but for other correspondents doing good factual reporting. Plus, the weekend producer so, always wants good stuff. <laughs> they- absolutely. And he was like Michael Rosen, great producer, good newsman. He's like, I will take that story. Absolutely. So I was going to fly up from D.C. to New York that weekend to introduce it on the set. And the Friday before I'm in the news and working on a different story for evening news, I get a call. And Michael, the producer, says, you need to call. I won't name her because I'm not trying to make this personal, but you need to call this person at CBS and editorial chain who wants to have some questions about your story. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, it's legally approved. All the producers approved it. You know, something's going on here. So I called the woman and she says things like, you know, it's very, very good script, a very good story. But I'm just trying to figure out, is this a feature about a whistleblower or is this an investigative piece about the cause of the Dreamliner fires? And I said, well, you know as well as I do that a great story is both of those things. It's a great, interesting person telling about something factual and perhaps investigative. It's got all the elements that we want. And she kept just saying weird things like, well, this is so good and so good, but maybe we should just wait till the federal government makes its findings. And I said, if we did that, we wouldn't have done the Firestone Tire story. Like none of these stories would ever happen if we waited on the government because they're not driving the agenda. They're usually trying to cover up things Mm -hmm. for corporations. You know, she knows this. So I finally said, if you don't want the piece to air, Right now, just say it because you you have these stupid conversations. It's very frustrating because they're not saying what's going on. And she goes, well, let's just wait. So that was the signal. She was in the chain of command. We were not to air the story. And I decided then I went home. I actually threw away the files. I'd done so much work. I just was so disgusted. It was an important story that would never see the light of day. And when my bureau chief came back from he was on vacation, I went in the next day he was there and I said, told him what happened. He said, that's awful, very frustrating. And I said, I can't see finishing out my contract under these circumstances. And so I, at that point, I spent the next six to eight weeks slowly taking personal stuff out of my office that that I owned because I was afraid as soon as I quit, I'd get locked out. Mm -hmm. And then I, um, on a Friday, I called my agent. I didn't even tell him in advance because I thought he'd try to stop me. And he has a lot of clients at CBS executives at the time. And I said, I'm not going back Monday. You need to call them and tell them, you know, I'm quitting. He's like, you can't quit. You're in the middle of contract. And I said, well, 
then they can fire me for not coming to work because I'm not coming back. And that's sort of that started a uncomfortable month or two process that resulted in me staying another, I'd say, year and a half and doing some very good work. I, I got three more Emmy nominations and won the Investigative Emmy Award that week, but there were still more stories that didn't make air that, that should have than, than that made air that last year I was there. And I mean, frustrating after pouring a year or so of research and time and energy and tracking things down and dotting your I's and crossing your T's and then just having it scrubbed at the last minute. Well, you know what the worst part is? I would get people, and you've probably done the same, whistleblowers to risk their career, you know, either endanger their family or upset their family by speaking out. And I would never promise them something that couldn't be delivered. They would always say, gosh, if I speak about this, will such and such change? And usually it doesn't, because unfortunately, the only thing we can count on for sure is the whistleblower gets in trouble, right? Life never is good for the whistleblower. And then the government or corporation continues to cover up. But I say, well, what you will be able to do is there will be a permanent record online of after this airs on TV that other people can refer to to see what's happening. And maybe they can speak out, too. Like, that's a small promise, but that's something I can give. So they would come forward at great peril to themselves. And then I'd have to go back to them and go, oh, your story's not airing. After their company often already knew that they'd done an interview, they were already in trouble and suffering the consequences. And now... They're being told after their story was so important that nobody cares, or at least the network's not going to run it. That was horrible. I would go home and I'd just sick over that kind of thing. So That is that worse. You're right. I mean, because to, to get someone to to reveal things to you, they they trust you and you, you take that trust seriously and you, you did and you do. And yeah, that would be horrible to, to have to disappoint after all of that and, and after they put their themselves at risk. I want to yeah. talk to you about the hacking of your computer at CBS. It seems it it seems almost ham-handed now in light of all the kinds of systemic and casual intrusions that we're seeing today from government agencies into social media DMs and email. How did you discover that your computer had been hacked? I had no idea because this was before Edward Snowden spoke out about the NSA um, abuses on American citizens. It was before we knew AP reporters' records had been secretly subpoenaed, before we knew James Rosen at Fox News had been spied on. But all this was happening in the same time period. So I only knew that two separate sources I didn't know very well from the intel community approached me and said, hey, you're probably being monitored because of the work that you're doing. I'm like, what do you mean monitored by the Obama administration? They said, your computers. I'm like, my computers? They said, have you noticed anything strange? And I had for two years. There's a long record of me calling Horizon and getting the computers worked on and the TVs and anything connected to the Fios line and the phones. It was just crazy. And so just sort of on a lark, even though it sounded kind of nutty, I had another Intel contact who said, I can get your computer looked at, your CBS computer, and we can see. And only if the computer is looked at by the right person. I mean, it was often looked at at CBS for spyware and all, but the government stuff can't be detected this way. It has to be looked at by someone who understands what the government does. And I, the source came back right away and said, long-term monitoring effort of your computers. There's not a surveillance warrant from the court out on you. This was done you know, illegally. They were monitoring your keystrokes. They looked at your Fast and Furious files. They were uh. in the CBS system. They were in the CBS corporate system through your computer. They knew dates. They had times. 
they use Skype to secretly, they could secretly, government can activate Skype if you have the app on your computer. Even if you're not using it, it doesn't look like it's on. They can listen into your conversations that way and all kinds of things that they were able to do. It's even easier for them now. They don't even have to go to the same links they did before. But CBS then hired an independent firm because I immediately reported it. The independent firm confirmed all of this and also looked at my personal desktop and said the same thing had happened there. And then I got my own forensic independent analyst to, to look at and find out more, which they did. So this lawsuit I've been fighting against the government because they won't take care of their own business or prosecute their own. Gosh, it's been going on since 2015 or something like that. I'm still in court. It's oh very uphill gosh. battle to fight the government. There's, they're not going to give you the information you need to prosecute your own case, but we're trying as hard as we can. Wow. If, if you want to, I just want to tell our listeners, if you want to read more about this, go and read Cheryl's first book, Stonewalled, My Fight for Truth Against the Forces of Obstruction, Intimidation, and Harassment in Obama's Washington. You know, I, I, we've talked about what happened was happening internally in CBS and kind of happening at news agencies in general. Um, but I'm curious as to um, the stuff you took on in Slanted, your, your next book. Uh, when did you start feeling the narratives on major stories taking place? Did you feel like they were shaped by the networks or shaped by community groups in cooperation with the networks? Uh, things like, uh, you know, the, the BLM uprisings and, and all of the, uh, the things you write about in Slanted. When did you feel these narratives on major stories starting to take place? Well, before I left CBS, I, I noticed this weird trend where we used to never just report what the government said as if that was a story. If the government made a press release or put out a video press release or made a claim, it used to be we would say, okay, that's newsworthy. So what's the real story? This is what they want us to know. What is the real story? And we would report it. There came a time when we would just report um, as if it were a fact, something we hadn't checked out, whatever the government said. I remember going, that's just so weird. We're normally skeptics of the government story, as we should be. It doesn't mean what they're saying is false, but it's typically not necessarily the whole story of a given controversy. And we quit trying to balance that. I thought that was weird. I'm like, we're nothing more really than government stenographers if we're just going to take something they say and put it on the air. And we did that also on behalf of some corporations. We started, you know, the, this is a slightly different issue, but the media started with the native advertising where even the New York Times defends this and thinks it's wonderful. They let companies pay to be written into something that looks like a news article. Like you'll read it and have no idea. It's not even always labeled anywhere, even in tiny print that it's advertising, but they're paying for some kind of consideration to be on the air to have their side told without the balance to it. I started seeing that happening. Um, and you know, you're so, right. I mean, a, reporting off a press release used to just be lazy, that you were considered lazy if you did that. I, I remember I had some Chinese journalists visiting our newsroom, and they asked me where the, the government fax machine was. Like, where, where's the, where, where does the fax machine where you get all the government uh, stories for the day? And, and I was horrified. And it feels like that's happening. Absolutely. And, and, you know, then, then I started hearing from these same conflicted editorial managers, things like I was assigned to do a story on fires that were taking place in Ford vehicles. And I just did a basic initial story. I didn't know much about it, research that was putting on the first piece. And an editorial person called me in the office and said, why are we doing this piece? <laughs> I said, 
Well, because I was assigned to do it. The the actual safety officials are look, have opened a case, which is pretty rare. They usually protect the auto industry as much as possible. So when they finally open a case, that's usually fairly meaningful. And there was actually a case open. So I said, well, there's a case. I was assigned to cover the story. She says, well, Ford says this isn't true. I go, well, yes. And okay. That's in the piece. But <laughs> the piece. And she's like, so there, this is a second trend I noticed. Instead of airing a story that had various viewpoints in it, they didn't want the story aired at all. It was a censorship idea that, again, it's so normal now. People won't maybe remember there was a time when we weren't expected to be these censors. Oh, you dare not hear this because we don't think it's true. Instead, we used to air an important or interesting story or controversy. And you could say someone says it's not true, but you did not air the piece. Well, CBS started not airing those stories. And I I don't want to go on with too many. I have one more example of that if you want to hear it. Yeah, yeah, please. So an investigative producer at CBS brought me a great story about stimulus money, government taxpayer money under the Obama administration, hundreds of millions of dollars that had gone to uh, build electric type plants in Michigan to, to do the electric car industry. And that money was required to go to help Americans. That's what it was for. But we got a tip. She got a tip and gave it to me, and we developed a story that these companies were bringing in foreign workers, which they weren't allowed to do with no particular specialty, from Korea. And that was in violation of what the stimulus money was allowed to be spent for. There were supposedly visa violations, and we got some undercover you know, video of this, and it was a great story. And it was good. I also like the tension where it's not just Republican versus Democrat. This was a story where the auto industry unions were upset with the Obama administration for allowing it. And so it was very unusual that we got them to go on camera against the Obama administration, Mm -hmm. these unions, and say, this is not what the money's for. So it was really a great piece with great video. And turn that in. We all left it legally approved. All the producers liked it too. It gets to that same executive producer, Pat Shevlin, and she says, well, at least some people were employed, even if they're not Americans. And I said, well, (laughs) If, if that's your takeaway, that's fine. And that can be someone else's takeaway, too. But she didn't want to air the story because of that. And I said, it's not a reason not to air the story. Like, I don't care what someone's takeaway is. If they see it and they think what you do afterwards, that's fine. Yeah. But she didn't want to air the story because she was afraid, I think, people would come up with a different or a bad opinion about the Obama administration. So I think I aired that on a weekend news story that would still a weekend news show that would still take it at the time. That's the first time I remember where, in addition to some vaccine stories, they weren't just arguing, gee, we need to make sure we have balance in all sides and legal approval. They were saying, people don't need to hear this. People don't need to know about it. And, and that, was, that was a trend that had not happened in my career before all that. What gives you hope for objective journalism? I mean, do you like what you see happening like on Substack? with some of these independent journalists, uh, where do you see hope? Well, I don't think there is much independent journalism. Um, well, let's say neutral journalism. There, there, there are independent voices out there. But unfortunately, what's happened is it's become polarized. So now, yes, I can go find right-leaning news or left-leaning news, or in the case of some very good reporting, I can find left-leaning people like Glenn Greenwald, who have gone out you know, on their own that say things that are in line with some right-leaning people because he's so disgusted with, you know, his own side. But I still think, and I believe that there's a market for 
more down the middle, more hearing different views, where people would feel like they're watching or listening or reading something that doesn't cut one way or the other. And I argue that even people who watch Fox News for the right and CNN for the left would still like to have a neutral place they could go to where they, because they know they're getting a viewpoint, and they would like to have a place they could go to where they would say, okay, I can kind of believe that. Like, I, there's not something missing in this story. And I think there's a market for it, but I don't know who's going to who's going to do that kind of journalism. I don't see anybody really striving to do that. Well, it I think me a little bit of people people are getting wise to this system we're talking about and they are pressing for more factual accurate. They're not just falling for the narrative and keeping quiet about it. They are seeking, you know, I would say the truth finds a way to be told. They are seeking more information. And I think something will come out of this. I just I just have no idea what it will be. Well, I think you um, you inhabit that spot very well. I mean, I, I watch your show, I listen to your podcasts, and and just really respect your reporting. Um, I, I know that the amount of research has to be tremendous that goes into your stories, your investigative pieces. It's time consuming. It's expensive. Um, my final question, and I ask this to all my guests, regardless of their industry, um, what do you do to recharge your own batteries? Do you have a hobby, a habit, a ritual? What works for you to stay fresh in the midst of all of this? Good question. I'll give you two answers. The one is the martial arts and exercise. It's just, you're so in the moment when you're doing intense workouts that you're not thinking about anything but that. And I love thinking about my job, but it is healthy to turn it off sometimes. And I find that's almost impossible unless I'm super preoccupied with something like a vigorous, you know, challenging workout. And number two, um, I've always been a writer at heart. I feel better when I'm writing about this stuff. So whereas I know a lot of people listening feel frustrated about something they see, I'm not saying what I do write ever changes the world, but it makes me feel better knowing some of this stuff I'm getting out to other people. They have a resource that they can go to, and it's sort of a way of relieving my own tension over these things we've talked about when, when I can actually put it to paper or publish it in some format, I would say that's sort of a hobby or a relief for me. Right. Cheryl, thank you so much for your time. I just really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And thank you for all you do. So happy to have a chance to chat with Cheryl Atkinson. You can find her show Full Measure each Sunday night. It airs on the Sinclair Network of Stations. But uh, you can also get it online if you don't have a Sinclair station in your city. She has a podcast where she's able to really break down more of her research, which is really interesting. I highly suggest you listen to her podcast because she goes through all of her research there on these various stories. She also has several books. Uh, one is called The Smear, How Shady Political Operatives and Fake News Control What You See, What You Think, and How You Vote. Another called Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. And then her first book, based on her experience at CBS, is called Stonewalled, My Fight for Truth Against the Forces of Obstruction, Intimidation, and Harassment in Obama's Washington. And if you're looking for a good source of regional news content, you can check out our new podcast. It's called Straight Talk. Now, I've launched this podcast along with my iHeartRadio co-anchor, Sam Shane. It's a daily podcast you can find by downloading the iHeartRadio app, do a search for KFBK Straight Talk, and it's going to pop right up. We play the most compelling audio from our daily four-hour radio show, and we have a more expanded conversation about the news of the day. Again, KFBK Straight Talk, it is a daily podcast, brand new. 
And fans of our radio show can also check out our new gear store. It is shopcsnow.com. Again, shopcsnow.com. We have some high-quality activewear and commuter accessories and items of interest. Again, that is shopcsnow.com. Thanks for being here. I'm Christina Mendonca. Stay powerful. This has been The Power Profile with Christina Mendonca. Stay connected through mendonzamedia.com.